We're going to read the Bible together just now. We've been preaching our way through the letter to Philippians on Sunday evenings, and we're going to read from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. Philippians chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Amen. We thank God for his word to us. Thanks, Peter. Well, do keep your Bible open if you have one with you. And we're going to think about this passage that we've just read uh, for a little while together uh, tonight. I wonder what you imagine you'll be doing in 25 years. What would that be? 20, 40, uh, 1 for 2040, 2046. Uh, I, I remember as a, a young child looking forward to the year 2000, and imagining how old I would be then. I would have been 31, and it was about 25 years off, and and imagining all the flying cars and all the different things that that we'd be doing at that stage. Of course, now it's nearly 25 years ago, but what what do we think we'll be doing in 25 years? And, And maybe more importantly, where do we think we will be as Christians? What will our relationship with God be like in 25 years. Sadly, if current patterns are followed, 
some of us who are here tonight or some of us who are listening online who are now walking with Jesus will not be walking with Jesus. That's a, that's a somber thought, isn't it? Some of us will have given up. Happened in the Bible. Paul talks about, in his first letter to Timothy about those who have wandered from the faith. And that's an ever-present danger that we must seek at all costs to avoid. And if we're going to avoid it, it will be because, at least in part, we have put into practice some of the things that Paul talks about in this passage that we've just read together. So, so in other words, if, if we want to be people who in 25 years are still saying, Jesus is my Lord and He's my Savior, then we, we, we've got to listen carefully to what this part of the Bible says. You see the way this starts in chapter 3, verse 1? It looks like a bit of a PS almost, finally, my brothers. It looks as if Paul was about to, to wrap up, and then he sort of gets carried on because, of course, this finally comes right in the middle of the letter. He says just as much after it as he has said uh, before. It reminds me of the story of the little boy who was in church with his dad, and uh, everything that was happening in church, he would say, now, Dad, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? The organist would start, the, the band would start, and say, what, 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 what does that mean, Dad? And he would say, well, this means that. And, and then at one point, the minister took off his watch as he was about to preach, and he put it on the pulpit, and he says, Dad, Dad, what does that mean? And the uh, dad says, nothing at all, son, nothing at all. And uh, if, if the preacher uh, who wants to keep on saying a few things and can't quite stop uh, has, has something to, to look back on, well, maybe he can look back to this part of the Bible and say, no, this is actually something that Paul did as well. It, it might actually be more tra accurately translated as in the light of all this. You, you know, it's a sort of a conclusion and, and uh, an application of everything that he has has said. Now, what's happening is that Paul is, is warning the Philippians about a, a dangerous threat to their faith. And it, it's, it's really hard for us to just grasp how fragile, you know, humanly speaking, how fragile the early church was, especially in that they had no, no history, no, we sometimes talk about institutional memory. They had no institutional memory. They, they had nobody that they could look to who could say, tell us what it was like several generations ago. Everybody was new to being a Christian. And not only that, they had many enemies. And one of the sets of enemies is in view in this passage. Sometimes we call them the Judaizers, those who would try to make them Jews, the Judaizers. So this was a group of Jews or, or possibly Christians who came from a Jewish background, and they followed Paul around, and they said, basically, it's fine that Gentiles, that's everybody else who wasn't a Jew, and of course, the church was growing at this stage very significantly amongst the Gentiles. It's fine that Gentiles want to become Christians, but the way that they need to become Christians is by first becoming Jews. In other words, to be a Christian, these Judaizers said, wrongly, of course, these Judaizers said to be a Christian, you've got to sort of first be a Jew, so you've got to follow all, for example, all the Jewish food laws, and you've got to receive the, the marks of Judaism, which for men was circumcision. That's why circumcision appears in this passage in the way that it does. So, so for them, you see, 
Christianity was a subset of Judaism. But as Paul warns them about this false teaching, he speaks about his own opinion, his own experience, and we get to see inside Paul a little bit. We get to see some of the principles that he is living by and that are a work within his life, and they're so helpful for us. And we see two of them. We're going to look at them here. There is a foundation to stand on and a direction to travel. We'll probably take a little bit more time with the first one. So, these are two convictions that Paul has, two principles that are, are working out in his life that we would really do well to follow. Because if we stand on these things, if we follow these principles, we will be in large measure saved from wandering from the faith. Because you can be sure that anybody who does wander from the faith has given up on these principles. So, if we want to be walking with Jesus in 25 years, Let's think about what Paul says here. First of all, a foundation to stand on. Now, this foundation that Paul talks about here marvelously is all to do with righteousness. It's, it's the biggest question that any man or woman or boy and girl ever faces, and that is, where is true righteousness to be found? Righteousness in the sense of a right relationship with God. There's really no more important question. One day, every single one of us, whether we believe it or not, every single one of us will stand before God. He is our Creator. We are accountable to Him. And how that day goes for us depends on this question. Where is true righteousness to be found? We've got to be in the right with God. That's how we must approach that day. Not partially in the right, not hoping we're in the right, not nearly in the right, but in the right. Where is it to be found? And Paul highlights it here as he contrasts his approach to, to life and to faith with that of the Judaizers. And the key distinction, if you look down, is in verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now, those are the two options. Those are the two options as far as this question is concerned. That's a verse for us perhaps to underline if we underline verses in our Bibles. It either comes, this righteousness, this right standing with God, either comes from you, it's a righteousness of my own, it's a self-righteousness, or it is a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves through faith in Christ. Those are the only two options. And you see, what Paul knew is that while what these Judaizers were saying was, was appealing to some, and that sounded dedicated and upright and moral, <clears throat> it really was a different gospel. And that's why he condemns them so strongly. You see, in verse 2, he calls them dogs and mutilators of the flesh. He's, he's, he's really using very strong language there. He's really angry at what they're doing because they're promoting a form of self-righteousness. And effectively, they are saying we get to be right with God because of what we do. Because in their case of our Jewish identity and our obedience to the law, let's say to the Ten Commandments and to the food laws and all of those things. Now, now that's actually a very common approach to that question. You know, if you ask someone, you know, how, how do you think you're going to get to heaven? They'll say, well, do you know what? I'm, I'm as good as the next person. Or I, I hope I'll, I'll do okay. I've lived a fairly good life. That is 
having a righteousness of my own. It is saying, I get to heaven because of what I have done. And you see, Paul knew that these Judaizers, with all of their their trust in the fact that they were Jews, their performance as Jews, and their performance as law keepers, was really putting their hope in themselves. Now, Paul's approach is very, very different. He says in verse 3 that it is he and those who are with him who promote the true gospel, who really are God's true people. That's what circumcision really points to. That's what he's talking about in verse 3. It is they who put no confidence in the flesh, in what we can do as human beings. And then he goes on to show why, if it was a matter of doing it that way, why he would be at the top of the pile. He lists all his religious credentials. You see that? That's really what's happening in in, in these verses uh, from verse 4 to verse 6. And you see, he, he talks about his, his background and his, his life before Jesus. He was circumcised on the eighth day. It was the, the perfect time to do it as far as Judaism was concerned. He was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the faithful tribes that hadn't given in to idolatry and so on. He was a member of the religious elite. He was a Pharisee. He, he went on, on mission teams to persecute the church. So zealous was he in terms of obeying the law. And and in all of these things, he really says he was faultless. He he was at the top of the heap as far as a self-generated righteousness was concerned. So, So, you see, if it was a matter of saying to God, God, I get to get into heaven because of what I do, I've earned this, Paul was way ahead of everybody else. Nobody had a better record than he had. And then he says something quite remarkable. You see it here, verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So, if if you know anything about accounts, you know something about a profit and loss sheet. And that's what he has in, in mind here. He, he, he thinks of all the things that go into the profit column and all the things that go into the loss col- column. And in his early life, in his pre-Jesus life, he, he put all of his achievements in the profit column. This is earning me stuff, he's saying. And then there came that point where he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. We maybe know this story. And he realized that all of that was wrong. It completely turned on its head everything that he thought in terms of his approach to God. And now the only thing in the profit column was Jesus. That's all. That's all that was working for him. All of the religious achievement, all of the, 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 the background that he had, all of his, 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 his standing as a Jew, all of that was actually in the lost column. Not because some of it wasn't quite good in itself, but because it was actually working against them in that he was trusting it. He was tempted to trust it in order to get right with God. He was clinging on to it, and sometimes, sometimes our religious performance can keep us from Jesus. Did you ever think of that? I, I, I know people, and their story has been that because they have grown up within a church, and they've always been morally quite good and, and thought of well by other people, they've never really felt their need of a Savior. That their religious performance kept them from Jesus. 
You can hide from Jesus in a church, you know. You don't have to be in the park with a, a blue bag. Well, where is righteousness to be found? It's found in Christ and not in ourselves. Paul emphasizes this because it's so important. And this is a key teaching. It's a key teaching in the Bible, but we might know the history of the church. For centuries, it was, it was lost at times and lost in places until particularly it was rediscovered in the 16th century by a young German monk called Martin Luther. We, we perhaps, some of us know his story really well. Martin Luther was terrified of the idea of God's righteousness. He saw it as a standard that he, that he had to reach. And, and he was a monk, and he worked really, really hard in his duties as a monk, and yet he never felt that he'd done enough. And that's the problem, of course, whenever, whenever we're, we're trying to bring to God a self-generated righteousness, there's always this nagging doubt at the back of our minds, have I done enough? And of course, the answer is actually always no. So, Martin Luther used to pray for ours. He used to come to confession several times a day. And, and when he thought of God, do you know what he said about God? He says, when he thought of God, he says, I hate it, God. Because for him, God had set this impossibly high standard that he couldn't reach. And then he realized, as he came to Christ, he realized that although the righteousness of God does refer to who God is and, and, and the standard that God has and so on, it also refers to a gift that God gives, a status that God confers. God gifts righteousness through faith in His Son. And that turns everything on its head because it says to us, you can't do it, but you know what? God has done it. Jesus has done it for you. And Luther understood this, and he said this, this wonderful quote. He said, now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. Isn't that great? You, you, why, why did, so Luther was, was still a relatively young man. He had quite a long part of his life to live ahead of this quote, behind, after this quote. Why did he feel that he'd entered paradise? Do you know why? Because the final verdict on his life of right with God had been brought forward in time and given to him while he still had a lot of life to live. That's one of the marvelous things about being a Christian. You know the result before the test. It's great. Really, he'd, he'd been converted at that point. Now, as I, I, I just said, this is, a, this is a platform to stand on, and so it is. You see, there's no good news in, like the Judaizers were doing, telling people, if you want to be right with God, you've got to do this and this and this and this and this. But there is good news in saying, Christ has done this for you. We may trust Him. That's the good news of the gospel. And I wonder, do we grasp this tonight? Do we grasp that all of our kindness as people, all of our religious effort does not win God's acceptance of us. As we believe the gospel, you see, this verdict of right has been given over our lives. We cannot be any more righteous tonight. It's amazing if we're Christians. Because what's happened is that rather than our puny self-effort being in our profit column, the perfect righteousness of Jesus has been put in our profit column. 
so that when God looks at us, He sees, as it were, Jesus written all over us. His record has become ours. And so, the Father's acceptance of us, do you know this? The Father's acceptance of us is not grudging or measured or with gritted teeth. It's full and final. Some of us need to know that, that we are so deeply loved tonight and so deeply welcomed, all because of Jesus. What an evening it is as we come around the Lord's table to be reminded of these things. Where do we stand? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I dare not trust my sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So, don't drift away from this. If you're a Christian, you see, you see we can start off well, and then we can, we can wander off the platform, as it were. We, we, can, we can begin to think that our standing with God depends upon us, upon our performance as Christians. And if we do that, then one of two things will happen. If our lives are going fairly well, we'll, we'll start to get really proud, and we'll start to think, I've done this. We'll, we'll be turned away from Him, and we'll not think that we need Him like we do. And we'll think, well, of course He loves me, because, because I'm a real asset to God. He'd be pleased to have me on His team. And we'll lose our wonder and our thankfulness, and we'll just end up trusting ourselves. On the other hand, if our lives are not going so well, and we know that there will be a point at which our lives are not going well, if our lives are not going well, then we'll be plunged into despair because we'll think that God is now less welcoming or less loving towards us. And we'll imagine Him standing over us and saying, what a disappointment He is. What a disappointment she is. I, I, I saved them. And look at what a mess they've made of it. And we'll be tempted to run from Him and hide from Him. But the platform that we can stand on, you see, is that our righteousness, our welcome, our right standing does not depend upon our performance, but upon the perfect work of Christ. That's all that's in our profit column. And you know what? That's all that we need. It's finished and fixed. Praise the Lord. Now, that's not all. That's not all. Because if that was all, we might be just tempted to, to sit still and to do nothing and simply to rest in what Christ has achieved. That's great. But, but for Paul, there's more. And that's the second one. There's a direction to travel. So, look at verse 10. I want to know Christ. He has to know the power of His resurrection and the participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Now, I think uh, John will be doing, I think we'll probably look at this uh, and verses 12 to uh, 21 a little bit more next week, but you'll see that the direction that Paul is traveling is that he wants to know Jesus more. He wants to know Christ better. So, so you think about it. You think about this as, as a description of any relationship. You think of the, the young man who has chased the girl of his dreams, 
And finally, after asking her so many times, she relents and she agrees to marry him. And, and they stand at the front of the church here and, and they exchange the vows. What does that young man do? He's pursued this girl for so long. Does he just say, great, I've got her. Back to Netflix. No. Well, if he does, he's really in bother, isn't he? No, what he does is that now he starts to chase her all over again and to woo her all over again. His position is absolutely sure. She has promised herself to him forever, but he presses on to know her better, to enjoy her more. This is a lifelong project for him. And you see, that's what knowing Jesus is. We, 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 we have been promised to him, him to us. His promise to us will never change. But from that secure place, we press on to know him more. And you see some of what knowing Christ means, the power of his resurrection, Paul says. Amazingly, Paul tells us elsewhere in Ephesians that this resurrection power is at work to make us holy, to change us. Do you know that we don't change easily? Do you know how much work it takes to make you more like Jesus and me more like Jesus? It takes the same power as that which raised Jesus from the dead. Don't think you can do it by yourself. That's what it takes. But pursuing Christ brings that power, that resurrection power, into play in a person's life the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death. You see, if we're following Jesus and we ask, well, what shape was Jesus' life? Well, we know that lots of it involved rejection and hostility and misunderstanding, eventually torture and death. And it's not that we seek these things out, but that we, we, we recognize that, that following Jesus means following Him along a road that may well bring some of these things. Jesus himself said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And so, you see, as we're getting to know Christ, then we're going to share in some of his sufferings. And yet, we will find that it's a fellowship. In other words, there's a knowing of Christ in sufferings that there isn't an ease some of you have told me that. Some of you have told me about times that you've gone through that have been super, super hard. And then you've said things that have humbled me as you've said, but you know what? I've got to know God in the midst of this in a way that I don't think I would otherwise. And I wouldn't change that for the world. Paul knew that. And then he says, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul's not uncertain here. He's not saying, well, maybe I'll make it to heaven. Not that. He knows where he's going. But he recognizes that there are two possible ways that he could be raised, two possible ways in which he could experience the resurrection. One is that if he dies before Jesus returns, he will eventually be raised with Christ. But the other is if Christ returns before Paul dies then he would be immediately made like him and raised without death. So that's what the somehow refers to. One way or the other, I'll be raised. The end's not in question. And so you see in verse 12 that he's just pressing on. Not that I have already obtained all this. 
<clears throat> I do not consider my mind, I, I do not, verse 13, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. So, you see, he's not static. He's not just saying, isn't it great? Jesus has saved me. doesn't matter what I do. No, he's pressing on. You see how these two things go together? He's confident of God's acceptance and welcome. He's a sh secure before Christ, but that doesn't make him complacent. Far from it, he says, I press on. Do you know, as I thought about it tonight, I thought there'll be some of us and, and whenever we talk about these two things that sometimes we sort of hold in balance, we, we sometimes think that there'll be some of us who'll need to hear one more than the other. You know, some of us might be a little bit complacent, and we need to be told, now we press on, we press on, we're not stagnant. So some of us might, might be a little bit uncertain, and we need to rest in the righteousness that God gives. But you know what I've realized? This is not a balance. It's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's a tension where it's all of this and all of that. So, in other words, every one of us, if we're Christians, we need to, to rest more deeply in our standing before God. Every one of us needs to know that we have a righteousness won by Christ so that we can stand before God with peace in our hearts. And every one of us at the same time needs to press on to win the prize, you see? all of both. Where will you be in 25 years? Pay attention to the foundation that we have to stand on and to the direction that we must travel. Let's take a moment to pray together. Lord, sometimes we just don't want to take stock. We don't want to look in too much because we see ourselves to be a bit of a mess. We're not resting in the Lord Jesus like we should. We're not pressing on like we should. And we want to thank you for this marvelous insight into the heart of, the, of Paul who, who was doing both so, so fully and effectively. And so, Lord, we pray in that sense that you've given us an example tonight. We pray that you'll, you'll make us like him. That you will give us a confidence in the righteousness that comes through faith and not in a righteousness of our own. What, what, a, what a pretense that would be. And Lord, too, we pray that you will give us an unceasing desire to press on and to make our own that which Jesus won for us. Lord, help us to strive after him, to know that as we give ourselves to him, there's nothing better that we can do. And Lord, even now, shortly, as we come around your table, we pray that we will know that Jesus has done all this for us, that we may stand and that we may pursue. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.